good to see you. I don't know what you have all going on in your week, um, right, Sunday through Saturday, all that you have going on in your homes, in your lives, in seven days. On Wednesday mornings, isn't it a great thing that we can be together and just seeing you all enter the building holding the Word of God and um, to just come together, to be together, to live life together for a few hours in the study of God's Word. Isn't that a special time built into our week? So thank you for being here. Just a couple of things. I wanted to let you know this morning when you came in, you received a handout of the notes that you'll have in front of you during this morning's teaching. But in addition to that, you received a small little card that looks like this. So take this home with you. If you, for some reason, need to miss on a Wednesday morning, or maybe you'd like to hear the teaching again, uh, you could either pick up a CD that we make each week, or you could get online, and you could download this or listen to today's teaching. Uh, and really, they'll, they'll continue to be on there, so you can even go back and listen to one a second time if you need to or if you'd like to. Well, this morning, it is my privilege to introduce to you um, the one that will be teaching us from the book of Deuteronomy. Um, And it is our pastor here at Zionsville Fellowship, Drew Hunter. So we appreciate Drew because not only will he stand here this morning and give you a wonderful foundational teaching on this book of Deuteronomy, but he's really been a major part of teaching us as we put together curriculum for you all, for all of us here this year in Habits of the Heart. So we appreciate him, appreciate the time that he has spent. And Drew, just tell you a little bit, he and his wife, Christina, and their three sons and one on the way have made their life here in the Zionsville community. So we're looking forward to hearing from you. I'll say no more because he has a lot to say. All right. Thank you. Well, hey, good morning. Good to see you all. So Deuteronomy, this is exciting. I remember, um, you know, everyone has their own experience with Deuteronomy, either you're just beginning yours or you've studied it for years. And so I remember uh, with, for myself, you know, it was, I became a Christian and when I was about 11, I didn't grow up going to church. And so I felt like most of my early years as a Christian were just trying to catch up with the other people I knew who, you know, they're talking about David and Goliath. And I'm thinking, what's that about, right? And so I'm just trying to figure out what, are, what in the world are these stories in the Old Testament and get used to the language and Deuteronomy, what is this about? And then over the years, finding my way around the Bible and then finding Deuteronomy and spending time in it has been greatly enriching. There was a season in which I spent significant, just several months studying Deuteronomy, reading through it over and over and reflecting on it. And it was one of the most helpful seasons in my life to understand the sweep of the story of the Bible and really what Jesus came to do. It prepares us for that. So I'm excited about you guys studying this. And just think about it, right? Look around this room. There are not a whole lot of people on the planet who will ever spend several months staring at the book of Deuteronomy (laughs) and soaking in it. And this is a wonderful opportunity. God's word, uh, not just, you know, surfacely read, but really soaking in it and hearing what God says to the world, to you, through Deuteronomy. It's an amazing thing. So I'm looking forward to you guys studying this, you gals studying this. Um, So here's a danger of studying Deuteronomy if we do not see how it fits into the sweep of the story of Scripture, which tells the sweep of the story of the world. Two quick dangers. One, uh, if we don't see how this book fits into the larger story of Scripture, we'll probably, perhaps, mainly be interested in the historical details. Uh, you will want to recreate the historical atmosphere 
uh, we'll, be, we'll be really excited about the maps and how many miles were between this, this spot and this spot and what was it like and we'll envision it historically. And all of that is really important and necessary for understanding the message of the book, so we have to do that. But we don't want to treat Deuteronomy like we treat any other historical book. We can get excited about all sorts of historical details about any aspect of history. Uh, but this is a message from God, and so those historical details matter for something beyond themselves. They matter to reveal, um, they, to show us God's heart, who he is, who we are. Another danger would be uh, treating this in a merely moralistic way. So Deuteronomy is filled with commands and expectations from God uh, given to his people, Israel. And if we don't understand how this fits into the whole story of Scripture, then we will hear the commands and we'll just think that we are supposed to treat it as though we are Israelites hearing these directly from God, and we're supposed to obey them directly just like they were, uh, as if all the time between then and now hasn't happened, Jesus hasn't come, he makes no difference to how we relate to this book, we'll just want to treat him in a moralistic way, which means we're either going to be somewhat proud as we pick the commands that we find easy to obey and we do them, or we'll be despairing because we'll take it whole and find ourselves not so able to pull this off. Um, so we have to understand how, what... What role does this fit in our lives and in the Bible? What difference does Jesus make? Where does this fit in history? So uh, for our time together, I want to consider three curiosities about the book, three questions that come to the surface if you spend time reading the book of Deuteronomy, and then consider how, what relevance they have for us today. So the first part of the outline, you see there's curiosities. Three questions about Deuteronomy and us today. So we really brief about these questions, then we'll see a sweep of the story of Scripture, and then we'll come back to these three questions again at the end. So first, what does the promised land have to do with us today? So a major focus of the book is Israel's life in the land of Canaan. Uh, the book begins with them on the outside of the land across the Jordan and they're about to cross the Jordan River and enter into the land. That's how the book begins and that is the focus of it throughout the book. We call it the promised land because it was the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants which become the people of Israel. So Israel is going to receive the land as a gift. They're going to enter in and much of the book of Deuteronomy concerns their future in the land. Are they going to be able to stay there under God's blessing, or will they leave the land because of their disobedience? So the question we read, uh, as we have as we read this, is what does the land, this central theme in Deuteronomy, have to do with us as Christians today? Of course, we may want to answer this and say, well, it's an illustration of God's faithfulness. Look, God promised to give people land, and he did it. And that's certainly true. But it's not merely an illustration, like God could have promised any number of things, and look, he promised it and he did it. Uh, so we want to ask the question, what does the land, this particular promise that God's fulfilling, have to do with us today? Does it have any lasting significance? Is there any lasting relevance to you and I today as we read Deuteronomy? Or is it merely just an interesting example of God's faithfulness long in the past? Second question. How do the commands relate to us today? So Deuteronomy has been called a covenant document 
because it describes the covenant between God and his people. It's really the renewal of a covenant that he made with them at Mount Sinai. And a covenant is essentially an agreement between two parties that bind them together with promises and expectations. So they're bound together with promises and and responsibilities on both sides. So Israel was rescued by God from Egypt. They're now entering into this covenant relationship with God. God's making promises to them, and they're needing to make promises to God in return. Promises of faithfulness and obedience. And so much of this book fills out Israel's responsibilities to God as their king. So the question that this raises for us is, if these commands were given to Israel in their covenant with God, how do these commands relate to us today? So we talked about this a little bit a couple minutes ago at the beginning. So how do we read the commands? Do we just treat them as, they're, as if they're given directly to us, like they were given directly to Israel, and then simply do them? So that's a question that we have as we come to this book. Third question, uh, why is the tone so pessimistic? So if you spend time reading Deuteronomy from beginning to end, uh, you'll catch a tone, and it's not a happy tone. So Israel enters the land. That's the first question. What does the land have to do with us? Then they enter into this covenant where they're to obey God. It's the second question. What do the commands have to do with us? And then this third aspect is, so what about their future? Because in Deuteronomy, we see blessings and curses set before them. One of the main lines in Deuteronomy is now choose life. Right? There's going to be life and blessing. They hold fast to God. And there's cursing for them if they don't. The blessings of the covenant are essentially this. They will be and stay God's people. In God's place, the land, under his blessing. So they'll get to keep this environment of grace that they have. If they reject God perpetually, then the curses of the covenant come which is essentially a removal of all of this. They're removed from the land. They're removed from God's presence. They're removed from God's blessing. And as we read about these two potential futures, it could go one of two ways, right? We could read it, and the emphasis could be on the blessings. And God could have written in Deuteronomy, and Moses could have preached to Israel, saying, here's your two options, and it's going to be great, because you have it in you, you can do it, Uh, You're going to stay in the land and forever it's going to be wonderful. Could be that tone. It could be a different tone. Uh, If you disobey, there's going to be cursing. And let me spend a lot of time talking about this. And honestly, I'm spending time talking about this because it's probably going to happen. In fact, it's for sure going to happen. And it's not going to go well for you. In fact, I know ahead of time because God told me, you will fail and you will be under the curses. So as you read Deuteronomy... Picks one of those sides. Picks the latter. It is, there's a tone of doom uh, in this book. So one example of this is if you just open up to chapters 27 and 28 and you see the blessings and the cursings, you'll see about a paragraph or so with some blessings and then you'll see a few pages of cursings. And they're given with such detail that it sounds almost like He's not just telling them a hypothetical future if they disobey. He's actually describing their future. And he is because later in Deuteronomy 30, 31, 32, God tells them 
there's a prediction of their disobedience and falling away from God and the curses coming upon them. So it actually is pessimistic. So the question is, why is this tone so pessimistic? What does this mean for us then, centuries later? What's the significance of Israel receiving this pessimistic, sad, dark-toned book? So let's step back now and gain some perspective on these questions. And the way we gain perspective is by considering the sweep of the storyline of the Bible. So, Bible is a long book. Storyline of Scripture is the storyline of history. Um, so, I'll try to spend seven minutes and tell the story. So, the Bible tells the story of the world, and Deuteronomy is like one scene in the story. So if you think about movies, you know, there's chapters or scenes that you can, you know, go to the menu page and jump any place in the movie. Deuteronomy is part of a story. And so we understand the significance of this scene by seeing how it fits in the sweep of the story. So there's a plot line to the story of the Bible, story of history. In fact, the reason why we love narratives and movies and stories is because we're part of one. And the Bible tells the story that we're a part of. So if you think of it as having four movements, here's four words you could use. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration or new creation. That's essentially the outline we're going to follow in this section you can see. So creation, fall, redemption, and restoration or new creation. So let's just walk through these. Creation, Eden as the pattern. So every story has a beginning. And the beginning is often stable and peaceful. It gives a glimpse of the way the world in this story is meant to be. And then some tension is introduced later that the rest of the story will be given to resolving. But at the beginning, we see what the ideal picture is. And at the beginning of the Bible, the first two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, we see the beginning. And it begins like this. I have that written for you on your your notes. God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence, and reflecting God's rule. So let's consider each part of this. Obviously, God is mentioned here four times in that sentence, and he's emphasized on purpose. The story of the Bible doesn't doesn't begin with, in the beginning I, or in the beginning we. It begins, in the beginning God. He's the central character, if you will, of the story. He's what everything relates to. And then we see in this sentence, God's people. So God's people, Adam and Eve, humanity, they were created as the pinnacle of creation. God makes all the world, fills it with the animals and vegetation, and then as the climax and the pinnacle, he creates Adam and Eve. And he made the world to be a blessing for them. So there's God's people and they're in God's place. So as part of the world, God made Eden, and within Eden there was a garden. We sometimes call it the Garden of Eden. It's really the Garden in Eden, and it was a place of flourishing and provision, all given by God's grace. He made this environment for them. He placed them in it, and they are enjoying God's presence. So there's many parallels between the description of Eden and the later descriptions of the tabernacle and the temple, because Eden was the first temple. It was the place of God's presence. 
and everything else that describes God's presence like a tabernacle and temple was modeled after Eden. So this is the greatest blessing of creation, is being in God's presence and enjoying him, reflecting God's rule. So Adam and Eve were made in God's image. Uh, In the ancient world, a king would make an image or a statue of himself, and he would put it in different far places of his rule. And it was an image of himself, and it communicated, this is the place of my rule. I have dominion and authority over all of this land. So God has done the same thing. He's made humanity in his image as representations of his rule. He puts humanity in, in his world, and he tells them, be fruitful and multiply and spread, and he blesses them in Genesis one twenty eight. right after it says he made, him, made us in his image, it says, God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So God is the king of creation, and he's made humanity as kings and queens to rule in his place, to reflect his rule in the world. So this is the vision of the good life. All things are well. And then we have the next movement, the fall. And the heart as the problem. So Genesis 3 introduces the problem. Adam and Eve reject God's rule, and by rejecting God's rule, they reject God. So their fundamental problem is not merely an act of disobedience, but the heart that created that act. They failed to trust God. They failed to trust his goodness. They failed to trust his heart. And this has been our problem ever since. So here's the result of sin. God's people, out of God's place, away from God's presence, and rejecting God's rule. So in a sense, Adam and Eve had a covenant with God. They were bound to God. God was gracious to them and promised to provide for them and meet all their needs by grace. And there was an expectation of faithfulness in return, obeying God's word. And Adam and Eve broke the covenant. They rejected God's word. They rejected God's rule. And so they have the curse of the covenant upon them. They're out of the land. They're out of Eden, out of God's pre- away from God's presence. And so really, they're, they're no longer God's people. They're away from God's place. They're away from God's presence, and they reject God's rule. And so the next movement of the story begins immediately. It's redemption, the covenants as the plan. So from the very moment of the fall, God promises redemption. He promises Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, is going to crush the head of Satan. It's really a seed promise of all things being restored. Everything that's going to be lost is going to be restored again, and God is going to see to it that it happens. And so we can summarize the plan of redemption this way. It's written on your sheet as well. Restoring God's people to God's place, and you can maybe add this note, to enjoy God's presence and to reflect God's rule, because that's the purpose. So it's restoring God's people to God's place to enjoy God's presence and to reflect God's rule. And this plan of redemption is a long one. It stretches from Genesis 3 through the whole Bible. And it's, you know, the Bible's one long book with 66 books in it. Many authors, but there's, it's united with one main author, God, and one main story, story of redemption, ultimately accomplished through Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And this story unfolds with a particular structure, There's movements to this story, and the movement 
of the story has, it hinges along the covenants. So there's covenants that God makes with people. So you can think of the covenants as the backbone of the Bible. There's one plan of salvation, and it's worked out over time through covenants. As God enters to, into history and makes promises that he'll intend to keep. And these culminate in Jesus Christ. So the covenants are formed around five people. If you remember these five people, you get how the story of the Bible works. Really six if we count Adam before. We've already talked about him. So in addition to Adam, there are five people throughout all of history that there's covenants associated with. And this is the structure of the Bible. So cliff notes. I find this really helpful. And you can just, I, the names are written right there. So we have Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Jesus. The better Noah, better Abraham, better Moses, better David. So let's walk through these very briefly. Noah, we begin to see just how deep and pervasive sin is from the outset. Genesis 6, God looks down at humanity and says, every thought and inclination of their heart is always evil all the time. And that wasn't just about Genesis 6, that's about all of us, that's all of humanity. All of us left to ourselves are like that. So then the flood comes as God's just response to humanity's perpetual, deep hostility toward God. And of course, it doesn't always look that way. Many people probably looked very good and virtuous and moral. Um, But I think Flannery O'Connor said something like, you know, one of the ways in which we can reject God is by obeying him, right? Fine, I'll do your commands to get you off my back. I'll pay your tax and let me live off the rest. That's what moral people do. We use God's commands to get rid of God. We don't want him actually ruling our heart and inclination. Uh, A note in season for Christians as well, because we can be moralistic and operate that way. And so that was the world. Bad people, good people, all of them rejecting God. Flood comes and God chooses one family to be gracious to with Noah. And God makes a covenant with Noah and creation. Graciously, he says, I will not do this again. I will not destroy the world with a flood. Now, that was necessary, wasn't it? Because if the human heart isn't changed, then, I mean, just every generation, another flood's going to come and sweep people away. So God just graciously kept humanity alive by saving one family and said, I will not keep destroying with a flood. So God's going to be patient and gracious. And by allowing Noah and his family then to multiply just like he did with Adam, it's a fresh start. And God's saying, I'm not going to keep destroying you. Uh, I'm going to make a covenant to not destroy so that this can be a stage for redemption. So here's the stage for the rest of the plan. That's what the covenant of Noah does, the Noahic covenant. Then Abraham is the first step toward fulfilling the promise. So he promises Abraham in Genesis 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I will make you a great nation and I'll bless you and I'll make your name great. That you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. To him who dishonors you, I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's not what's expected. What would be expected is flood, right? All the families of the earth will keep getting judged. But instead, God says, through you, I have a plan to bless the world, to restore all that was lost. This is coming from the heart of the Lord because he loves people so much. And so we see the promise of God's people. God's chosen Abraham and his descendants to be God's special people through which he'll bless the world. 
We see the promise of God's place being restored. Go to the land which I'll show you, the land of Canaan. Here's God's people in God's place. It's sounding like Eden again. And the promise of God's presence. At the heart of the covenant with Abraham and subsequent covenants is this phrase. You will be my people and I will be your God. So God's restoring us to his presence, the greatest blessing. Then we come to Moses the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. So Abraham's descendants are multiplied and enslaved in Egypt. God rescues them from Egypt and brings them to himself. And this continues the promise of restoration. He brings them into a covenant with himself. So now they're God's people. They're being brought to God's place in the land of Canaan to enjoy God's presence. That is clearly the goal of the redemption. God brings Israel to himself and he'll be with them and he'll dwell with them. And they're now to reflect God's rule, like Adam and Eve failed to do. That's why all the commands are there. The commands are saying, here's how you love me and love others. Here's how you live as a human uh, in this world. And so Deuteronomy comes within this covenant. Really, Deuteronomy is a renewal of the covenant at Mount Sinai, because Israel broke that right away, golden calf. And rebelled in the wilderness for 40 years. And Deuteronomy is Israel re-engaging with God. It's renewing that covenant. Renewing these promises. Then we have David. The Davidic covenant. Over time the promise continues to develop. Israel enters the land. They become a nation. They have kings. And then God promises to David. Through you there will be a king who will reign eternally. So now we find that God's blessing to the world is going to come through one man. He will be the king of God's people and through him all the nations will be blessed. And then we come to Jesus and the new covenant. So throughout the Old Testament the story of Adam is repeated. Israel rejects God's rule. They do not trust him. They're eventually cast away from his presence in exile. That's Adam and Eve over again. And the prophets later in the, in the Old Testament are essentially covenant lawyers. So they take Deuteronomy And they bring it to God's people and they essentially say, you are not being faithful to this covenant and therefore the curses in Deuteronomy are going to come upon you if you do not repent and turn back to the Lord. And then when they continue to not repent, they go into exile and then more prophets come and say, you're in exile not because God's not faithful, God is faithful. He's being faithful to Deuteronomy. You are under the curse of the covenant. God is being faithful to you. You weren't destroyed because your God's too weak to protect you. You were destroyed because you hate God. He's overseeing this judgment. And then the prophets would also promise something that they got from Deuteronomy. A new covenant that will come beyond the judgment. And so, I have a few of them listed there on your sheet. Let's just read a couple. Uh, I think the second one there, Ezekiel 36. Beginning in 26, God says through the prophets, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And listen to this strong statement. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Jeremiah 32 verse 38. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. 
I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. In other words, I will not bring curses on them ever again. They will always live under blessing. And then listen to this. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And then one of the best sentences ever written, I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul, the Lord says. And so centuries past as these promises are lingering and Jesus comes and he lifts a cup and he says this is the new covenant in my blood he gives himself for us to bring about these promises so Jesus came really as the true Adam the true Israel the true human he's going to do for us what we have always throughout history failed to do He will alone fulfill the terms of the covenant. He will alone be the faithful human toward the Father. He will alone trust and hold fast to the Father like Adam and Noah's generation and Noah himself and Abraham and Moses and all the Israelites and every one of us have failed to do. Jesus will do it and he does it in his perfect life. And then on the cross, well now that's interesting. Think Deuteronomy What happens if you obey the covenant? You get the blessings. On the cross, Jesus got the curses. What's he doing? Those are our curses. He's taking the curses of the covenant upon himself. The the ultimate exile that Adam experienced in the day you eat it, you will die. Jesus takes the eternal death and hell upon himself. He takes the curses of Israel's covenant, deeper than that even, upon himself so that we can get his blessing. So he's risen from the dead, and then he receives the blessings, and then anyone who comes to him, not by proving how great they are, and proving that they can do what Israel failed to do, no, by acknowledging that we have all failed to do what God expects, and trusting in Jesus as the only one who can do what God was expecting Israel to do in Deuteronomy, by trusting in him, we get the blessing forever. I love this story. Finally, new creation, the story will come to completion. It'll be returned to Eden, but better. God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence and reflecting God's rule. The new earth will be like Eden and Canaan, but better. So, in the last two minutes, uh, last point, let's just return to these questions, and in light of this story, I'll make a couple comments to show how that storyline helps us resolve some of these questions we have in Deuteronomy. So first question, what does the promised land have to do with us today? Well, the promised land looks backward and forward in the story. It looks backward to Eden. Right? It, it was, it's described in the Bible as like Eden, a garden flourishing under God's care. And so it was meant to evoke that as Israel enters in there to picture themselves being like a new Adam in a new Eden, being created anew as a fresh start. So it looks backward to Eden. It also looks forward because the goal was, the Canaan, Canaan was never going to be really the full restoration of all that was lost. Um, it, it was a land of milk and honey, but it was also a land of deserts. 
Um, it had plenty of, plenty of issues. It was a land of flourishing, but it was just a picture. And it points forward to the new creation, creation where the borders will be the whole planet. So when Jesus returns, we find out that there's going to be a whole renewal of the earth. A new creation will come. And it will be a physical world again. And we will be risen from the dead if we die before Jesus returns to live with him in a new earth. It will be a new Eden. Borders pushed out for the whole planet. So as you read Israel crossing the land, think ahead of us crossing the Jordan through death and future resurrection into the new land. Second question, how do the commands relate to us today? Well, at one level, they simply do demonstrate what God expects all people, uh, from all people. Uh, Scott Haifman, a professor, said, the commands of God simply make it clear what trusting God looks like in concrete circumstances. And that's right. So as we read Deuteronomy, it's like this, it's not that complicated. It's, this is what it looks like for you to trust me and love me and love one another. Now, at the same time, we should also recognize that there's a lot of uniqueness to these commands. They were given as part of the covenant for Israel. So they're not given to all humanity. It was a unique moment in this story. And so it's the part of the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. So as we plot ourselves in this story, we're not under that covenant. We're under the new covenant with Christ. The Apostle Paul refers to the law of Christ as what we are under. So um, we don't always obey these commands directly then. So this takes work. It's a fairly complex subject. But here's just one phrase to remember as you read Deuteronomy. This is not our covenant, but it is our scripture. So let's not put ourselves under this covenant as if this is what we're called to obey in all the details that he gives Israel. But then let's not just dismiss the whole thing. This is our scripture. It's God's word to us. So there's instruction here. And then finally, why is the tone so pessimistic? Uh, Well, at one level, that question's phrased rightly. Uh, Humanity has an inability to obey God. This book is pessimistic about that. In fact, it's more than pessimistic about that. It's absolutely hopeless. The future is already predicted in Deuteronomy. Israel will fail. They will be exiled. But... That's really not a fair way to ask the question. Because if you read Deuteronomy in light of the story, you find out that it's incredibly optimistic and hopeful. Because Deuteronomy 30 gives the promise for what happens after Israel is under the curse in exile. The prophets in these new covenant promises we read, they got that from Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says that God will give them new hearts. He will cause them to love him. And we get in on this. So in the end, Deuteronomy shows us just how bad we really are and just how great and merciful God really is. So the point of the law is not to enable our obedience. It's to show that we can't do it. Uh, Jesus did it. And now through trusting in him, he's giving us new hearts so that we can. So, hope. Um, Well, thank you all for listening for a while. I'm eager for you to study Deuteronomy, and I hope you enjoy your discussions here. So um, have a good time.